1 John 5. I heard a story the other day about a man who was down on his luck. He needed some money and he needed it bad. A few doors had closed. He got the idea. He said, man, the local zoo has all those animals. I bet I could find a job there feeding the animals. He goes and he interviews with the manager. And the manager of the zoo says, I have no job openings. But seeing how big this guy was who was interviewing, he said, hey, I I got a problem that you might be able to solve. Our gorilla died the other day, and he was one of our most popular exhibits. If I give you a really high-quality gorilla suit, would you put it on and imitate him for a few days just until the next gorilla arrives? Just maybe three, maybe four days at max, and we'll, we'll pay you large for it. The man was so desperate, he said, sure, I'll do it. In fact, after a few hours of doing it that first day, he kind of got into it. He'd beat his chest, he'd make gorilla sounds, he'd grab the bars and shake them, and just within a few hours, he had a crowd gathered watching this scene. He was quite popular. But about two days later, he got a little too into it, and he was swinging on the trapeze, and his grip slipped, and he flew over the 10-foot-tall chain-link fence and landed in the lion's den where they kept the lion. And he landed, and it kind of hurt, but he got up and he looked at the lion. The lion looked hungry. The lion looked mad that he was in his home. And so he said, man, I bet I can climb back over that fence. So he, he'd take a step back towards the chain link fence. And as he did, this hungry lion would take a step forward. And then as the lion would take a step forward, the lion would growl. And of course, that would make his heart beat faster. So he'd move a little faster. Man, after about six steps, he'd had enough. And the, the gorilla yelled out, help! And right then, the lion immediately whispered, shut up, you idiot, we'll both get in trouble. You know, it's, it's one thing to act like you're something. But it's another thing all entirely to actually be that. Both the lion and the gorilla were faking it. In our world, when it comes to Christians... It is so easy to fake it. Last week we talked about the security of the believer. And there are very few concepts that are more well addressed in your Bible than your security. But one of those that's pretty closely addressed is deception. It is often discussed in scripture here in particular. First John will talk about the double-sidedness of both security and deception. And as it presents an answer, it maybe is the question you're asking, how do I know I'm the real deal? We're in a series called Disciple First. If you're a guest of ours, that's a little play on words here. In the Bible, uh, we often think of disciple as a noun. I am a disciple. I hope you are a disciple of Jesus. It means an apprentice, someone who's following to to take what they learn and then pass it on to another apprentice. But the word in the Bible for disciple isn't just a noun, it's also a verb. It's something we do. We are to disciple others. And in our world of deception and fake, uh, what I call Christian mimes who can mimic the things of Christ, but inside they don't have it for real. They can beat their chest, they can raise their hands, they can say the words, mimic the motions, but inside they're fake. 
And so when it comes to disciple first, I am a disciple first, the noun. I am, as a church, we are to disciple first, that is the verb. In the church according to Jesus, you've got to major in the majors. When you major in the minors, you major in the momentary. The things that you are ad-libbing, the things that you're just faking it till you make it kind of thing, th- th- those are momentary. But when you major in the majors, you're majoring in the momentous. It is momentous to be called into the family of God. It is momentous to sing what we just sang at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul, right? Passed away, failed away, moved away. That is momentous. And so when we talk about discipling first, we are talking about the church according to Jesus. So last week I said we're going to answer over the next number of weeks three questions that every disciple should know, should ask, often do. This is today the question I get asked more than the other three. Last week we looked at the, the final one on the list. You see it then down at the bottom. How do we know we won't lose our salvation? All right, the security of the believer is well addressed in Scripture. But these other two are what we're going to talk about today and next week. I've already given you the notes for both weeks. We're going to cover about half of what you have in your listening guide. But we're going to ask the question, how do I know that I have salvation? Now, eyes up here. See a lot of people looking around. and I, I want this to be an equipping thing for you. I want you to be ready to give an account of the Bible's answer to the question, assurance of salvation. But the reason I want your eyes is I want you to open your heart up to this question in your own soul. If if you don't have the five things we're going to talk about, I think spiritually you're required to really ask the question about your salvation. That these five things, yeah, they're in order of priority. The first one is more important than the other four. But these five things provide an answer to a question you have got to have an answer to. All right, so as we walk through them, I, I, my heart is to equip. My heart is not to convict. But, but that is definitely a part of this text. So if you feel your toes are stepped on, this isn't a, oh, enjoy the conviction, go tell someone later, wait, great sermon, pastor. Or you tell your friend, great, oh, that was such a powerful, moving sermon. This isn't a a message you can say that about. If you feel convicted that you don't have one of these five, you you don't say to your friend, oh, that just hit me right here. Wow, that's such a powerful. No, you you come see me. You go to your discipler. You go to your small group leader. And you say, you know, number three on that list I don't have, and it worries me. Okay? Do we have an agreement? Okay. Okay. We're going to look at a text. Why don't you stand and let's read 1 John 5. little Christian calisthenics here. Sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. All right? Here's God's infallible word. 13 verses, 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. That's His love language, obedience. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever 
is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory, verse 4, that overcomes the world. Say it with me. What does it say? Those of you who have your Bibles, our faith. There's the answer. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with water and with blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And there are three that actually testify to this truth. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive this testimony of men, the testimony of God is even greater. For the testimony of God is this. That he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Believed the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony, what is it? It's this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. Let's start from the back and move our way up. I had you say the word faith. The Bible's answer from Paul to Peter to John to Jesus himself. The way that you know you have eternal life is faith. Now, I'm going to spell out what that means here in this text. But, but I, I do believe there are certain words that since we don't use them a lot, they don't have a lot of meaning. And I think faith is one. Faith is one we, we throw around. I have faith. You got faith? I got faith. You got faith? I have faith. You know, we throw it around, but we don't know uh, the importance of it scripturally. And so I'm going to start at the back end because I think in Bible study, the last emphasis and the first emphasis are, are, are the most powerful parts of a passage of any truth. And the final emphasis, look, look at the final verse. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What's his audience for these things? Believers. This is why my heart for you is I'm not coming here trying to get you to admit that you don't really believe, uh, that is a byproduct of this text. Some of you think you're a believer and you're not. But what is often so subtle we miss it is that the number one means of assurance is your faith. And the number one place that that has as its most strong connection is in this idea of knowing. Look at this. These things I've written to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what's that word? Know that you have eternal life. Let's back up a couple of verses. Go to verse 11. And, and this is the testimony. Here is the truth. Here is the thing that we know. Here's the thing you ought to know in order to know. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Say fact. This is a gift, and it's been done. It's a done deal. It's a fact, according to Paul and John, that Jesus has provided already eternal life. God has given eternal life. Done deal. It is a fact. And this life is in his Son. Now look at verse 12. Here's another fact. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Here, here is the fact of faith. Some of you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Some of you do not. Those of you that do not have a day-to-day personal relationship with Jesus, you do not have eternal life. If for you, for me to say, do you know Jesus, you say, fact, I do know him. That is your assurance, and that is your primary means of your assurance. People ask me, how do you know Jesus saved you from your sins? March 28th, 1992. I say, well, I was there when it happened. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the fill in the rest. It was there by faith I received my sight. I received my sight there. I received faith as a free gift. Faith is a gift, and now it's a fact of my story. Jesus saved me. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus asked this question, now remember Nicodemus in John 3? He's a moral, intelligent, religious man. He's intelligent. He knows his Bible. He comes to Jesus and he says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus wants to get him a little off center, so he says something that you need to hear. He says, you must have a birth from above. You must have a miracle of salvation experience. You must be born again. Look at verse 1 of this text. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, say faith. He starts with faith, and then he gives a fact. Is born of God. Those two go together. If you aren't born of God, then you've never really believed that Jesus is the Son of God. You said, no, I did. I, I believed. I was at that VBS. I did this. I prayed this prayer. But if you have not been born again... Now, some of you came to faith as a young child. You didn't have a, a childhood, a college years of sowing your wild oats in your 20s and 30s, praying for crop failure. But you haven't had that wild side. And so your salvation story, like my wife's, uh, didn't have any baggage, much baggage to it. But if you ask her her salvation story, she had a rebirth experience. She went from feeling dead to the things of God to feeling alive to God. And it was clear. And so where does your assurance lie? Even if you don't remember those days, you can remember right now. You know how you feel right now. Do you have, in fact, a personal relationship with Jesus the Christ? If you say, yes, amen, then you have assurance of your salvation. If you say, I don't know, then you don't. And you need to get a pastor. I said it earlier. What you're hearing here, this isn't a, ouch, oh, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. What a good sermon. No, no, no. You deal with this. This is heaven and hell. The importance of this text is not small. It is momentous. It is cosmic. It is eternal. You know, we start here because this is where the Bible starts. It's a propositional truth that it is positional and it is propositional. It is not peripheral. It is essential that you know where you stand in your relationship with Jesus. Because this is primary and the secondary aren't that close to this one. This is huge. Romans 6, 8 and 9 says, We believe and we know. 
We believe faith, we know fact that we have a relationship with Jesus. They go hand in glove. All right, so first thing, fact. Here's the second thing. Look at uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. I read 1, but let me finish it. Chapter 5 gives the second thing. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's an either or. You either are or you're not. But whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And I love that he makes a beeline to the second thing I want to highlight. It's a thing that Jonathan Edwards, the great awakening preacher, spent most of his time speaking about. It's the phrase affections. I'm not making a beeline to fruit. That's next week's sermon. For you, your fruit can often be deceptive. Jonah had peace in the belly of the ship, but he was running from God. He had fruit in his life, but he was not right with God. There's so many types of fruit that can be deceptive. If you're a Christian mime, you can deceive yourself and you can just mimic. You see what someone else does spiritually, so you do it. But you're not the real deal. You're a gorilla in a suit. But here's what you cannot fake. Affection. People who have been born of God have love for the things he loves. It is hunger. He tells the woman at the well the next day, you'll thirst no more. When you find me, you find all that you need. He goes from Nicodemus in John 3 to the woman at the well in John 4, the very next chapter. And he tells her this immoral unintelligent heretic who has had five husbands he says to her the thing that he wants to get a hold of is her affections she has been seeking fulfillment in all the wrong beds and the affection of her heart needs to be satisfied in Jesus alone listen to Jonathan Edwards a quote from his book probably a sermon the religious affections he says but yet it is evident that religion consists so much in affection as that without holy affection, there is no true religion and no light in the understanding is good which does not produce holy affection. You want holiness. You want the word. You want praise. You don't come in here begrudging. You don't shut your mouth when songs are sung. You don't care what the tune is. You don't care if it's a hymn or a chorus. You don't care where you're at. You're a songbird for Jesus. Because you have holy affection. Because you have the fact of your rebirth. You have a wellspring of new desires that comes up from your new nature. Let me keep reading. No light in the understanding is good, which does not produce holy affection in the heart. No habit or principle in the heart is good, which has no such exercise. And no external fruit is good, which does not produce from such exercises. So if you've been born again, you have a new nature, John says. You have a new heart. You have new desires. There is a change of affections. Before I came to faith, all the things I longed for, all the things I wanted were not good for me. When I came to faith, the very night I gave my life to Jesus, that very night I stayed up till four in the morning reading the word of God because I wanted to hear from the God who saved my soul. The next day, I was 
looking to tell who I could tell. No one had to tell me to witness. The next day after that, I went to worship. No one had to tell me to go. No one told me to go sing songs to Jesus. I just had it. See, this is what Jesus does when he saves a heart. He gives you a new heart. This is the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. This is Ezekiel 36. That he takes out the heart of flesh and he puts in a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a new heart. That wants what God wants. Loves what God loves. Desires what God desires. Your agenda is so small you turn it away to turn to the agenda of God. Every ability that you applied for your own aspirations, every ability has a kingdom application now. And so you invest it for the kingdom. No one has to tell you to serve the kingdom because that's what you want. Let me give you an earthly illustration. We have dogs. And they like to eat things that are horrible to me. Disgusting. They love, you know what they think is candy? Horse manure. They think it's candy. Now, I don't have to give you a list of rules to keep you from eating horse manure. Why? Because it's disgusting. But a dog loves it. A dog will also eat vomit because it loves it. You say it's disgusting because it's not your nature. But if you were a dog, you'd love it. And you think, how can that be? And that illustration is earthly. But when it comes to the things of God, the things which disgusted you before, morality, self-control, giving to the kingdom's work, spending time with other believers, studying and studying, controlling uh, parts of your appetite that everybody in the world says, just do it, obey your thirst, move with it. Those things were not good to you. But when you come to faith in Christ, they become your hunger and your thirst. Do you see where I'm going with this? The, the Bible doesn't make a beeline to the, the works of the Spirit. It starts with the heart. It starts with the affections of the heart. That's where the things of the Spirit come from. If it is twisting your arm to study the Bible twisting your arm to come to worship on Sunday morning. It is twisting your arm to be not hateful, not covetous. Question your salvation. I do you no good as your pastor to make you feel good about those bad appetites. I, I, it does me no good to say, it's okay, it'll come. No, for the true believer, you have the nature of a blood-bought believer. You have the nature of a born-again soul. You have been redeemed. You have been regenerated. You have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And there is no way you're not going to want the things of God. This is how God changed you. Of course, it doesn't mean you're immediately perfect. Or that you no longer struggle with sin. It's just that your sin struggle is no longer defiant. You cannot love God and love the things that grieve him. You can't love God and love the things that grieve him. You cannot open a mouth that praises songs to him on Sunday morning and crucifies him on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and acts like he doesn't exist. It is your mouth and your life that best reflects who you are in Christ. So let's go there. 
The third is image. Your reflection in your actions. The Bible talks about your actions in terms of the image of God. From Genesis 1, when God says he makes man in his image, to Genesis 3, where sin pollutes that image, what Jesus does when he saves a soul is he gives a reflection of who God is in the the restoring of the image of God in man. This restoration of the image of God means you begin to do things and look like your father. So, So catch the order. Everybody catch this. This is no small message. Number one, assurance of your salvation is the fact of your conversion. The propositional truth that you're a believer, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you have a relationship with Him. You know Him. Right? I don't have to ask that question about, am I married to Wendy Lee? Was Ferguson now Moody? Do I, do I have to spend a lot of time feeling assurance there? I have the ring on my finger. I remember that Day in July, that Saturday, July 6, 1996, when she said, I do, I said, I do. I am married to her, but you know, I have the affections that prove it. I love her. I can't get enough of her. She's my best friend. I want to please her. When I do wrong, I want to apologize to her. Then also, I have the image. You know, we were thinking about it. We were at a horse judging competition yesterday. We even mentioned it, how, how we too begin to say and do things alike. This is the Christian. You have the birth certificate. You have the affection for the things that the Father loves. And you begin to look like the Father. You begin to have action like the Father. Go from John, 1 John 5. Turn over two chapters to the left. 1 John 3. Starting in verse 6, read this. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him sins... The idea here is sinning habitually. If you have God in your life and you love the things of God, you're not going to habitually sin. This is the idea of continue with sin. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. If you bear the image of righteousness, you're righteous. Just as he is righteous, you're, you're showing him. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Uh, There he gives the idea of what kind of sin he's talking about. You habitually sin. You're habitually addicted to those things you shouldn't be. You're habitually hateful. You're habitually critical. You're habitually a liar. You're habitually doing those things. You're, and this is common in 1 John, it's an either or. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. No one who does it? He is practices is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy that dynamic, that work, that repetition. No one is born of God practices sin continuously because his seed. Look at the last point. His nature, right? Your your affection comes from his nature within you. In the New Testament and the Old Testament, it pictures that as a seed, a seed of his nature has been planted in you. That's what it means to be saved. His seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Say image. The image is obvious. It's clear who the children of God are and the children of the devil. If you, it's not clear in your life, that's troubling. 
for Paul and John and Jesus, it's clear. Apple trees produce apples. Thorn trees produce thorns. If you are into apple living and your life is fruitful and you're a part of the kingdom and you're working for that's part of your assurance. It's not primary. It's third level, but it's a big part of it. If you're a thorny person, critical and negative and spiteful and vengeance and hateful, and you're, you're a, chopping other people's trees so your trees can seem taller, and that's who you are, that's troubling. If you have the other two, but you don't have this one, that's troubling. Keep reading. He who is born of God practice, doesn't practice sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Verse 10, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. <laughs> no, the image of God presents, produces God's image. The born-again believer produces what God wants to show. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, Religious Affections. Since holiness image of God, is the main thing that excites and draws and governs all gracious affections, it is no wonder that all such affections tend to holiness. That which men love and they desire to have and to be united with, united to and possessed of, that beauty which men delight in, they desire to be adorned with, those acts which men delight in, they necessarily incline to do. Isn't that great? If you've been born of God and taken from a domain of darkness to a domain of light, and that's a fact, and you have the affections of his nature in you, you want what God wants. What does he want? Holiness. Holiness is what he longs for. It's what you should long for. Now, he doesn't leave you alone. Here's the other truth. Look at chapter 3. Same text, but I read it in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he is born of God. It's this idea of the practice of your life is pushed and prodded and trained. Write the word train. You're in training. You're growing. You're not going to keep going that direction because you're in training. The Father won't let you get away with it. And by the way, if you're not growing, then he will discipline you. Listen to this text. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11 says that one of the assurances of the believer that you're a believer is you hear that against your backside when you start fumbling the ball. When you start running from God, he doesn't wait for your permission to discipline you. When you gave your life to God, you already gave him permission. He, he, is, he is not... Asking for permission, even though we find it objectionable, God will step in when you start going south and he will correct you. It's one of the marks of a, being a part of his family is he disciplines his children. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't bled for your sin struggle. After, though, you have completely... And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? It's meant to be an encouragement here. This isn't meant to feel bad. This is meant to encourage. That addresses you as father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't make light of it. 
There's one response to God's discipline you might do. You hear this on the backside of your life, and you go, ha, that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I'm just a red-blooded man. I'm just a red-blooded female. You make light of it. Have you, have you noticed your kids do that? Uh, okay, let, I'm, I'm going to do this. I did this in earlier service, and it, it was shocking to me. How many of y'all in high school got some licks by the principal? Raise your hand. Come on, be honest. Look at that, a lot. It was like half the crowd in the last service. All right. Now, you, you knew the guy, the stiff-necked guy who went to the principal, and he's getting spanked. He's like, that didn't hurt. He says, did you learn your lesson? Sure. You know, take it lightly. Or keep reading. It's on the screen. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, or do not lose heart when he rebukes you. When the Lord disciplines, some people go the other direction, right? They... They overreact. They faint. This was most, mostly my daughters. Right? I'd spank one of them. You're killing me. You've hated me. You've always hated me. I'm dying. You know? And they overreact. This says don't do that. Keep reading. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. Every hardship. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? That's the definition of a good father. If you are not disciplined and everyone over undergoes discipline, then you, whoo, read those next words on the screen. You, read it, are not legitimate. One of the assurances of salvation is you're disciplined by God, and that sound on the backside of your life when you go south is reassuring you. You're his, or else you're illegitimate. Ouch. Not true sons or daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, he has purpose. He disciplines you when you fumble into sin because he has a purpose. He wants you to hold on to the ball. You know, this is the definition of a good coach. When you're in training, I had this. I was a running back in middle school, high school. And when I dropped the ball more than a couple of times in a game, they would set up this alleyway of football players. And I would have to run through it over and over and over again. They would be real thin in alleyway, and they'd hit the ball and hit the ball and hit me. And if I dropped it, I'd have to do it over and over because that's a good coach. Because he knows the point is to get the ball into the end zone. And if I don't hold on to the ball, I don't get it into the end zone. Some of you are dropping the ball. Instead of running to Christ who you trust, you run to a bottle. And God disciplines you in that. Instead of, instead of looking to the eternal perspective of what God is doing in the long run, you are woe is me in the momentary. And you look at all you can see is your own darkness. But God is your light, and his light is a, casts a great, a great light at the end of your tunnel. And God, when you act like the world is falling apart because of this, this, or this, instead of trusting God, God will discipline you. When you run to false lovers, God will discipline you. When you fumble the ball of your mouth and you loose lips sink ships and there is something you say that tears somebody else down, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Whoever said that doesn't 
have a clue. When you hurt someone with your words, God disciplines you. And you feel his love against the backside of your life. And yes, it hurts, but you know it's God loving you. So, maybe you overreact. Maybe you take it lightly. Some of you have 20 years of avoiding it all the way. You just kind of coast, keep your life in check, and don't do anything great or don't do anything bad. You just kind of coast. And you think you can avoid the discipline of God. That isn't the way to live. Avoiding, I'm not, hey, if I don't go to practice, the coach won't get on to me and I won't have to deal with it. Yeah, but you don't learn to grow. It's like the man who, uh, he's from New York, he's coming down into Texas and he has an accident against a guy in a truck and a horse trailer. There's a horse in the trailer. And this accident left everybody pretty bruised and beaten. A few weeks later, a few months later, the New Yorker called the insurance lawyer. And he said, hey, I got all these bills, my truck and my health. And I, I want him paid. He said, whoa, 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 I'm looking at the police report here. And you told the Texas Ranger that you didn't have any injuries after he did an interview. He said, yeah, sir, but you don't, you don't know the whole picture. When the Texas Ranger arrived on the scene, he went to the horse trailer and that guy first. And he noticed that the horse was hurt. And so he took out his gun and he shot the horse right then. And a little bit later, he came over to me, and he just asked me how I was. And you better believe him. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't avoid discipline. Embrace it. When it comes to our church, we, we stomach accountability, and we stomach discipline. And I want trainers to call me to the carpet. I want brothers and sisters who are willing to watch my back. And if, my, if I'm exposed in the end, in the rear end, I want people to tell me. If I got a tear in my britches, I want people to tell me. If I got a boogie in my nose spiritually, I want somebody, hey, hey, how did, how did my daughter say you got a little bat in the cave? Some of you spiritually have a little bat in the cave. And if there isn't any, if you're avoiding discipline within the church and you don't have a spiritual running partner, and there's nobody there telling you got something green right there in your teeth spiritually, that, that isn't good. That's like the emperor with no clothes. You remember that story? No, no, you're, you're in training. And if you don't learn from your training, guess what? You have to take the test over and over and over. If you're in an ugly cycle of the same unholy habit hitting you over and over again, it's because you're not learning the lesson. And you're going to have to keep taking it over. Here's the last point. Here's the final point. I've given you Johannine theology. John's theology is it starts with the fact of your born again experience and the fact that you have a relationship with Christ. Remember, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And then it goes to your affections. You love the things of God. You hate sin. I mean, you hate it. When you drop that bad word, it feels so bad in your mouth. It tastes like vomit. Whereas before it tastes sweet to drop that bomb, now it tastes like vomit. You don't just have affections. You look like God. You're oozing it. And not just that, you're in training because you want to ooze it more. You want to be more godly. And I'm looking at men and women in this room who fit all four of those. You are godly. Those are the four things that make you godly. But Paul has one he wants to add. I think if Paul in the book of Romans was asked the question, how do I know I'm a true believer? I think he would simply say, Holy Spirit. That's your final H, Holy Spirit. Spirit, the indwelling, the filling, the illuminating of the Spirit. 
I think John would agree. Don't turn to Romans. Just look at 1 John. I'll quote Romans 8 in a second. But look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. We haven't read it. but The final verse of chapter 3 says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. It's consistent. If you keep it. Did you know that God's love language is obedience? You, you want to love God? Obey him. Well, you're not alone in obedience. He is in him. And we know by this that he abides in us and we are in him by the spirit whom he has given us. Ephesians 1 will say it's the down payment. It's the deposit. You ever been in that place from when you sign a contract for a house and closing? How do you know that house is going to be yours? There's a little bit of nervousness. right? There's a little bit of what will the uh, what will the inspection find? Will the appraisal come back? And will it connect to the price that I paid it? Will the bank loan me the money? All those are, there's a little bit of nervousness, but you put the deposit down. And so you have a certain amount of assurance. Well, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that is the Holy Spirit is the deposit of faith. That when you are indwelt by the Spirit and you see the animating effect of the Spirit, you're talking to someone, the Spirit says, say this. You say, yes, sir. And you say what you need to say. The Spirit knocks you on the shoulder, says, hey, go over here to this guy and talk with him. Hey, walk across the room to your, to your cafeteria and sit down with that person and share Christ with him. And you say, oh, okay, God. And you're animated in the Spirit, that's assurance. When you go to back to your vomit and you're chewing on it, and you're in that bar or you're looking at that porn or you're critical and negative, and not positive, you're full of anxiety, and you know that's the old life, and you're, and it doesn't taste right, and the Spirit taps you on the shoulder, says, spit that up, spit that up, and sticks a finger down your throat to spit up that junk that you're pushing back into your system. Don't shoot up on that anymore. Spirit's there telling you that. That is a, a nudge, that is the big squeeze, that you are a true believer. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That sounds like John. But Paul is talking about the Spirit. If you aren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not of Christ. It's like a glove. Around our ranch, we've got lots of these. You always got to have them on or you're going to have some pretty good blisters. By itself, it does nothing. Grab the water bottle. Oh, wait. That didn't work. Let me try it from the other direction. Grab the water bottle. When you're grabbing the things of Christ, it requires an animation effect where the Holy Spirit indwells and fills. And now, the water of life is yours and for you to give. And in the process, the Holy Spirit animates the believer. And how did Paul say it in Romans 8? His Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're children of God. And the Holy Spirit provides that. Just a few verses past verse 9 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You're feeling on Tuesday, I can't go on, I can't do it. And the resurrection power that we celebrate Easter is on your behalf, on into your life, is filling you. I can, I can do it again. Go again. Step up. Shake it off. Go again. That resurrection power of the Spirit provides everything you need isn't that good i hope it's good i hope you have these if you don't you make an appointment with me this week 
you see me out in the hall right now. This is no small message that you could go, oh, that's, oh, right there. I don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's, oh, that's so good. I can't wait to tell someone that. No, no, you, you, don't, you don't enjoy the conviction. You use it as the passion to drive you to the doctor. You got some great gangrene in your foot. You don't, you know, look, got a little gangrene, huh? No, no, you, you go to the surgeon. So don't take these things lightly. If you don't have these five, woo, if you have these five, woo, sweet Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to see how you apply that to others. How do you apply those five things without being able to see anybody's insides? How do you apply those things? All right, let me pray for you. Jesus, we recognize that all you've done in your life on this earth, your death and resurrection is to provide us adoption into your family. And on that day where you rescued us out of the slum of our orphanage of sin and brought us into the home, adopted fully, born into the family, we began to learn to love the things you love. We lost the taste for gutter living. And now we're sitting at the table of your communion and we're enjoying the people that you've placed there alongside of us, brothers and sisters. And we love those things and we don't just love them, we want to get better at them. So we train and when we fumble, we know you love us enough to not let us fumble long. You jump in there and you pick us up and you put us back on the place, on the path. When we fall off of our bike with its training wheels, you put us back on the bike and you push us down the road again because you love us. And even when we skin our knees, even when we get hurt in our own sin, you give us a salve of the Holy Spirit. You place power in us to pedal more. And you say, go, keep going, you can do it. And you cheer us on. We love the way you love us. We love the way you love us. And it gives us great assurance that you are ours and we are you, yours, and your seed within us produces beauty. We can't wait to see you face to face. Until that day comes, and come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray that we'll be in training, not just try to live the Christian life, but training. In Jesus' name, amen.